Thabiti, thank you, brother, so much for your, your labors and your love in that lecture. And Danny, thank you for your work this afternoon, brother. Both of them very helpful talks in different ways. Uh, my, my goal, our goal for the next 45 or so minutes-ish is, is first I want to I talk about Danny's talk and 1 Corinthians 5, which is going to be a little bit more nuts and boltsy, very practical sort of stuff because the, the passage, passage seems to elicit that. And then Thabiti will, will think about yours, which was very much about the character and the nature of the, the people leading and then the process, some profound thoughts there, thank you. And then, and then thirdly, uh, we may just conclude with a special guest who will remain nameless for now. You, you've never called me that before. <laughs> Well, we wanted to recognize you in a special way, as well as the other person who we might introduce to the crew. Um, Danny, you, you made the remarks, or you were talking about how the Corinthian church were out-tolerating Roman, debaucherous Roman society and culture, and then made the point that when they did that, they were communicating that the gospel changes nothing. And it kind of just clicked in my head when you were saying that, how uh, when we communicate the gospel changes nothing, we are robbing the world of the hope, or at least one element of the hope that we have in the gospel, which is the gospel changes people, right? It actually has the power to change. No, not perfectionism now. No, not over-realized es eschatology. But these people, there is an expectation that these people in the church are changed, and that's evangelistic. And then you made the connection to how this is evangelistic, ultimately, right? Um, further thoughts on that, brother? The gospel gets eclipsed when there's not transformed lives that give evidence that it's real. And to come back to what the Beatty said tonight, it works. Uh, it's not true because it works. Uh, it works because it's true. But we lose that when there's no perceptible difference between us and the world, and you're right, they are looking for hope. People that are caught and in bondage to sin are wondering, is there really any place where I could find release, liberty, forgiveness? And in essence, the Corinthians were saying, nope, uh, we're not only not different than you, we are worse than you. We're hypocrites. Yes. And therefore, there would be nothing attractive about wanting to join yourself with a body like that. So church suffered on the inside. The gospel got eclipsed on the outside. I like what you just said. Lost people get robbed of their hope of what could be their experience through the gospel. That's why prosperity gospel churches prosper as they do. Because people are wanting something that makes a difference, a real difference in their lives. And, you know, fa falsely as it may be, that's what's held out. And motivational speakers make so much money. Last night, Ligon, you were talking about how church discipline or a lack of church discipline undermines our preaching. Do you want to explain that again? How church dis a lack of church discipline undermines our very expositional ministries? Well, again, along these lines, if, if you're teaching certain truths and you're saying that you believe them and then those truths are being positively contradicted by the lives of the people that you not just are preaching to, you hope there are lots of people that you're preaching to whose lives contradicted, but they're called unconverted non-members. But your, your converted members presumably are going to bear some witness to the reality of these things that you're talking about. And so that, that, that very lack of caring about the lives of your people undermines the integrity of your message in the eyes of unbelievers. Yeah, that's right. Jonathan, Mark's point a moment ago, I, 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 this is dangerous, but I, I for years have tried to figure out why in the world people listen to Joel Osteen. I, I just can't figure it out. I have tried, I have I've worked at it, and I have been just an absolute failure because I cannot understand why anyone would give him five minutes of their time, much less 30 minutes of their time. But I was talking to a very conservative evangelical pastor several years ago, and he said, well, I'll tell you exactly why. He gives people hope. It may be a false hope. I think it is. 
It may be uh, a vacuous and it may be nothing more than a mist, but people go to hear him and they listen to him on TV because in the manner in which he does what he does, he gives people hope. The tragedy is when we lose church discipline, he's giving them a false hope. We have an authentic hope, but it gets eclipsed if we do not practice uh, this loving ministry, this ministry of loving confrontation to those who fall into, into the depths of sin. Well, if I could sketch a little more similarity between us and Joel Osteen, you know, I think, uh, we, which you, you commonly do. Well, you know, uh, I, I don't know cable TV, but when I travel like, you know, like I am right now, hotel rooms have cable. And sometimes I just find myself, I'm a little ashamed of it, turning to TBN, you know, or inspiration network. This is confession of sin. And I just, I can't resist. I don't, I don't stay there. We've been talking about living in the light all day. I don't don't stay there. We're going to lay some hands and deliver. I'm just kind of like you, Danny. I'm curious. What's, so, so when I, I sit and, when I sit and watch him for a few minutes, I very rarely hear anything I disagree with. What I hear, to borrow that phrase Packer uses all the time, what I hear are half-truths, and a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. So I find this with Joyce Meyer. That's another good example where if you look for the error, unless you just happen to hit the, the golden sermon, you know, then uh, you, you might not be able to find exactly where they're wrong, but when you see what they're presenting as the whole truth, when it's really just a half-truth, but they're presenting it as the whole truth, that becomes a complete untruth. Okay, here's how we're a bit bit like them. In our churches, if we preach expositionally, but we don't practice church discipline, we're presenting a half-truth in our church's life to the world around us as if it's the whole truth. And I really don't want to conclude the sentence, but, you know, I fear that can make it a complete untruth. You know, we, we don't have the hopeful changed lives held out are the churches marked by forgiveness and love and, and a sincere desire for, for sweet restoration because we've not really dealt honestly with our own sins. We, we ourselves haven't been the object, known our hearts to be the object of God's mercy in the way that we really are. And so we're not as forward with these wonderful sweet truths from, from 2 Corinthians that we were thinking about tonight. Well, a biblical illustration of this, Mark, if, uh, comes from Ray Ortland's uh, talk at the uh, former Nine Marks at Southern Conference where he was talking about Galatians 2 and how presumably Peter was still preaching or speaking the gospel, but his action of separating from the Jews began to preach, his life began to preach an untruth so that he was properly disciplined by Pauls, and I think right there you would have an example of that. So, yeah, but, but, but the larger point here being that churches, our evangelistic power is, is, is grounded, at least in part in the fact, that we are a holy, marked-off people, disciplined, training, working together, fighting sin people, and this is what makes us tr- attractive to the world and, and, and hope-giving. Flabidi? If that's joyful... I fear, particularly in our circles, that's dour, hmm. you know, and, and um, there, isn't, there isn't hope, there isn't joy, uh, that's, that's just all drudgery. Um, and, um, you know, I just, just often talking to African Americans who move perhaps out of uh, traditional African American churches into uh, reform circles and predominantly white circles, and, and one of the things they instantly miss is celebration. You know, just the joy, the crescendo, the climax that's so typical to African-American gathered worship. Now, sometimes that's not tethered to anything more substantive than, than Osteen, depending on the preacher and the place. Um, but boy, if, if, if you can tie celebration and joy to the deep, profound truths of the Bible, oh man, that's... that's, that's that's enough, preparation enough for heaven. to make me become amillennial. Almost. <laughs> almost. 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 So, almost. That's Anacostia River Church in D.C. Pray for them as they work on Pray that. That's exactly them. what they're doing by God's grace. I appreciated your reference to the prodigal son there toward the end because there, there is that celebration, right? Um, to get a little bit more nuts and boltsy here uh, from these thoughts, 
Brother, you briefly mentioned the difference between Matthew 18, which seems to be a process, and 1 Corinthians 5, in which Paul is just like, don't even talk to him, just hand him over. How do we understand, let's just think about the verses for a second, how do we understand why Matthew 18 is one way, and then 1 Corinthians 5 is another way, and then what does that mean for us as we try to figure out how quickly to move in church discipline? I think there are two things I could say. One is, it is possible to make the assumption that Matthew 18 has already been invoked, though I'm not really sure it had. Sure. The second is, sometimes sin can be of such a serious nature and such a danger to the body, you have to fast track it. You would always prefer to go slow, uh, be very patient, long-suffering, sometimes the danger could be so severe and in particular in fact I was talking to some brothers after the session coming back on what Mark had said earlier I think wolves in sheep clothing may be at the top of the list where you have to fast track because there's such a danger to the health of the body when false teaching gets inside and that little portion becomes a big growing lump of danger and cancer and kutsu and all of that you just cannot wait you run a you run the risk of of the body getting killed certainly suffering serious serious bodily harm and so it's a judgment call uh john you, you don't know for sure but i would say that when those type of things happen that's when you fast track it and i think paul was not just concerned about the man having lived and, and was living in immorality. He was concerned about what it was doing to the church spiritually and theologically. I think he would have said this guy was kind of, well, they had turned him into kind of a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. They were giving him the past. He was still a sheep. And I think Paul was saying, now he's acting like a wolf. So, brothers, would you, would you all agree that ordinarily, kind of a Matthew 18, slow, gradual process, once in a great while, it's going to be a little bit more First Corinthians 5. Is that, is that how you brothers are, are viewing this? And if so, Certainly what does that look like? when you're dealing with public sins of pastor elders, so if a pastor elder denies the deity of Christ, uh, very often in those contexts, you know, somebody will write a book denying some central doctrine, and uh, then a faithful brother will, will publicly critique that false teaching, and somebody said, well, did you follow Matthew 18? Well, sorry, he put it in print. There's no discovery that needs to happen at that point. And, and that's exactly what Danny is talking about. Sometimes you have to fast track because that wonderful quote that we heard from, no, no, from brought, was it brought us or voice? Brought Somebody read, uh, yeah, voice. voice. The oh, three no, uh, well, changes. Richie, at, at Furman, at Furman right, 50, exactly, 1856. Exactly. That's, that, that kind of stuff can infect the, not only an entire congregation, but entire groups of congregations. A denomination. So it requires it, it, and demands a, a swift action. Matthew 18, it's not known. First Corinthians 5, everybody knows. Yeah. Different circumstances. I think everybody knows, but it, it still depends on what it is. So, for instance, the, I, one of the examples I used was of a friend. You had this guy who was being a sexual predator with other people in, his, in the ministry. I, I think, yeah, it had needed to happen fast then, particularly because of his posture. But if he was confronted and he, and he was truly broken and repentant and came public and stood before the church and said what he had done and asked for forgiveness and you know, went and tried to reconcile with all these people and submitted to all sorts of pastoral care and all kinds of things, I'm, I'm not convinced that, that, that you excommunicate him. Um, I, I, may be, I may be out of step there, but I think it, it depends on what's happening to the person. Now, we need to figure out real fast whether this person's, because he's a, he's a wolf at this point, it appears. Um, those, that's, I don't know. I, I, could be, I could be corrected on that. Well, I mean, I, I do think there are cases, even where you see someone who is repentant, where repentance looks like submitting to the discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they may be given every evidence of repentance, but for other reasons or purposes for which discipline is necessary, the name of Christ, the mm -hmm. protection of the body, so on and so forth, you might still move on with, with excommunication. So, so then my question, would you ex excommunicate somebody who was repentant, who you thought was a Christian. 
Somebody who you genuinely believe. You genuinely think this person's a Christian. I genuinely think they, they're repentant. They, I think they're repentant. I think they're a Christian. We're going to excommunicate them versus we're going to publicly rebuke them. Uh, I think I think depending on the situation, if it's if it's an elder, for example, you know, latest thing I think, First Timothy five, at least publicly rebuke. But you're also describing a situation which is predatory, True. and you're describing a situation where many folks who engage in that predatory behavior, as a part of the abusive pattern, give evidence, give a look to repentance. And I would argue that it's still pastorally wise, uh, perhaps depending on all the particulars, to pursue that to excommunication, and to wait see. Let, let him continue to, pro- to, to prove his repentance by his deeds, including submission to and welcoming of the discipline itself as, as necessary to, to clarify the gospel, to um, honor the name of Christ, to communicate his willingness or his desire that the congregation be protected from that kind of behavior. There, there are all kinds of other things that need to be communicated in addition to we love you, and, and, and we're encouraged by God's work of grace in your life. And yet, prudentially, you know, there's some things that we still need to, we need to work through. Whether that's public censure or whether that's excommunication depends on the details and things of that sort. But I would not rule that out as a category. Since you asked the question, can I answer it? <laughs> Please. All right. Let, let me propose this. I would suggest that if, if, if we assume that somebody, we collectively think, yeah, they really are repentant, you can publicly exhort, warn, so forth, but you wouldn't actually remove. However, I, I, I think there are circumstances in which, and sins of which, and maybe it's a predatory thing, where the person's words of repentance they're just undermined. There's been such a pattern of deceit. It's, it's uh, of such a nature that it's just like, we can't believe you at this point. So for instance, I, I know of one church where an individual was predatory in a number of ways, and it involved deceit over two or three years, and the church didn't discover it until the police discovered it, and he was in prison. That's when they discovered it. Pastors go down to the jail cell, He's crying through prison bars, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Well, at that point, of course you're sorry. You're in prison, you're shamed. Uh, We just don't know that we can believe you. And at that moment, they they did immediately excommunicate. And I think that was the right thing to do, even though he professed repentance. There's a big difference between being caught and like coming out. And like somebody comes into your office and says, I need to tell you the truth. Sure. I've been lying for a long time. I need help. That's, that's, that's right. totally different than you got busted, you know, um, for sure. Brothers in general, how do, you, how do you answer the question, which sins require something public, public discipline, public excommunication? Presumably you're not going to say worry. Worry can be a sin. You're not going to take that to the church. What, how do you answer that question, which sins? Public sins. Well, sexual sin's often private. No, but it public scandal, right? I mean, it's becoming apparent. Um, you know, if somebody gets somebody pregnant outside of marriage or something happens, it's going to be quickly coming apparent. And so you have to act um, quickly and publicly and make a statement because you're not just at that point rebuking the, the person. But as we've said, we're teaching the congregation and others, particularly in my congregation with a lot of first-generation Christians who just don't know, and they need to know, this is not acceptable behavior for a Christian. So, um, yeah, and obviously sexual, that sexual stuff is, some sexual sin is not public, but generally things become public very quickly. Um, I mean, yeah, I think... I think in all of this, we need to pray. If we need to pray for anything in our congregations and our elderships, it's the gift of discernment, because we never hear much about that gift. And uh, you know, but things come out when you, you discern things as a pastor. If you know your sheep, you certainly do. Jonathan, I would say we we want to make sure we do not take the posture of spiritual peeping toms, and we're not spiritual garbage can inspectors. What Matt says I think is exactly right. When it becomes public, 
when it is uh, ongoing, when it is unrepented of, then at that point, I think you have to step in and begin the process of Matthew 18. I think the list that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is representative, not exhaustive. Certainly those sins he deems serious. And I often use the phrase serious sin, but I don't want to, I feel a little uncomfortable because, well, what's serious and what's not serious? You all have brought up several times the issue of do we exercise discipline against church members who are not regularly attending? And my inclination is to agree, yes, even though it's not in that list there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think, again, that is serious uh, because their spiritual health is impaired and they're not giving evidence of regeneration when they are not gathering regularly with their body of brothers and sisters for the purpose of worship and edification and evangelism and so on. So I think you've got those categories of, of, again, public, unrepentant, ongoing, at that point, almost any sin becomes virtually serious. And therefore, at that point, you, you have to begin the process. I think some instances as well, you want to guard some Christians who sometimes, I don't know if it's just my church, want to go public and it should stay private. Um, and because it's unwise to, to bear your soul. I'm going to bear my soul. Right, I've done this. I'm going to bear my soul as a congregation. Uh, I'm like, that is not going to be a wise move. We want to counsel you at this point to, if you obviously repent, if they're obviously repentant, and um, again, it's, you know, it's not public, it's not causing division, it's not causing confusion, then I, you know, we, I have, and the elders, we have counseled people to just, we'll, we'll, we'll walk with you on this, we'll, we'll, we'll um, keep an eye on this. The difference between worldly sorrow and repentance is so similar. The only thing that gives it away is fruit. That requires time to flourish. And so, um, so sometimes we have to guard against going public. I don't know what other brothers think about that. But. I, I think that's wise. I think that's very wise. Because there you, you're raising pastoral concerns about whether this is going to be edifying for the congregation or a stumbling block um, for the congregation. Um, in some ways, you're protecting that person who wants to make the confession. You're protecting them. Uh, and their reputation and making it you know, possible for them to continue to enjoy the fellowship of the congregation without undue stigma uh, and things of that sort. Um, and, and I love your call to discernment because we, we do need to pray for that, don't we? Um, when we're trying to discern if someone is repentant and bringing forth evidence of that. Uh, or we're trying to discern, are we looking at weakness or wickedness? That's, all, that's not always evident. The rebellious are not always like, ah, 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 ah. I mean, sometimes they're quiet, you know, and, they, and, they're, and they're humbling your presence. And they're leaving with a hardened heart, you know. And so that, that prayer for discernment and to be able to know these categories, um, I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just paramount. It's paramount. Lightning round question here. Quick, short answer. I'll give, you, I'll give you the options here. Should we discipline publicly sins of omission, like just not leading your wife or not giving money to the church? You can say, no, never. Maybe once in a great while, but boy, that's tough. Or no, you should treat them just like sins of commission. Mark? Non-attendance. That's a sin of omission that you would. So you're going to treat sins of omission just like sins of commission. Nope, non-attendance is the only example I can think of. Being a bad husband, uh, not leading your wife. Nope. Not going to do it. I don't think so. No. Yeah, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of an example other than that, too. So ordinarily, you're going to treat... Now, now let of, me say this. If it comes public... And the guy's known as a wife beater? Yeah, we're going to... No, 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 that's, no, no, that's no, 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 wife beater. That's commission. That's very different. Oh. He's just... I mean, we're going to beat him like a yard dog. No, in Jesus' just... name, of course. He's excitable, isn't he's he? He's not washing his wife. Nine marks disassociates himself from Penny. I'm going to go to abuse in a second. No, he's not washing his wife in the water of the word. Paul commands, wash your wife in the water of the word. He's not doing that. No. 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 
Yeah, I'm saying no too. Let me switch it up for you guys. Not giving money to the church. No, no. No. No? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm with Joel on this. Once a Scotsman, always a Scotsman. <laughs> You're with who? Joel Osteen. <laughs> no, no. no. For the record, that was a no. No, that is a no. Thank you. So, <laughs> so, but, but Jonathan, on this, I don't know how many people saw this, just in the last couple of weeks, there's this horrific story of a church that excommunicated a woman in her 90s, I yeah, think, I saw that. unable to attend the church, and they excommunicated her because she had not contributed to the church in, in whatever period of time, and their bylaws require, you know, contributions of X amount, so on and so forth. Well, if it's a story I, I was reading, which it sounds like it is, a very elderly woman, she was saying that the pastor who was there wasn't from, she, he wasn't Baptist, that he was holiness Pentecostal. That's a different one. Okay. That's the there one. There was a couple got, of them. Yeah, there was a couple, couple of them. them. So the one I'm thinking was a couple of weeks prior to that, um, where the daughter was like, yo, my mom is sick and infirm and unable to come. She's been a member of this church for 60 years or something ridiculous. And um, the folks excommunicated. Yeah. For Jonathan, not I was in. Tell home. me they had not read a Nine Marks book. Just tell me they had not read a Nine Marks book. <laughs> I was in Australia a couple of decades ago at a church, and uh, it was a church that had probably 200 on Sunday morning in attendance. Found out later it only had 100 members, which was the reverse of what we often experience over here. And uh, I said, so your, your membership is, is much smaller. And he said, yes, we renew it annually. And I said, really? He said, yes. And I said, and what is the basis? And he said, regular attendance, uh, contributing to the work of the church, and giving. And I said, and if they don't do those things, he says, we go and meet with them. And if those things do not get corrected, they are removed from membership. Now they still attend, but they are removed from membership. I would have to assume in some way that became public. Sure. Which, you know, I've... Mark, give us a quick rationale for why you would not remove somebody for not giving. Well, realizing there might be times in which we might suggest the congregation excommunicate someone for that not giving, if we've talked to them about it, it's a part of a larger pattern of disaffection with the church and its work. So sometimes we would if it's a part of something larger. But if it's merely that, because the, the, uh, the reasons that someone may not give are so many and so various, that it just if we if we got into that level of care for each member of the church, one not only are we you know not not blessed with the omniscience of God and the ability to look into people's hearts, but there's only so much time in the day. I mean, as it is, let's say in in a four-hour elders meeting every other week, probably about an hour and a half is given to the kind of pastoral work as the elders discuss individual cases that could end up in discipline. So if that's practically helpful to you, four, out of four hours every other week, probably about an hour and a half is given to discussing the kind of specific cases that you all have brought up to me at breaks. That's just what, that's the, other than prayer, that is the main thing elders do, try to sit around and give, give each other wisdom on those things. And to try to pick fights at that level, we, just, we couldn't do that. We're just not, we will not have that kind of discernment. That's just, that's just no go. Can I just sort of ask a basic question here? I'm, I'm, you asked that as an example, and, and I, I'm leaning back thinking about this. Categorically, would you say not giving is a sin? I think it can be. I don't think it necessarily is. So not categorically? No. Okay. And so I that's, would agree. I would not categorically say it's So a that's sin. why I balked at the example. I just thought, okay. oh, I'm not sure I'm ready to define that as a sin. When well, I I'm think just saying it, it could be. It's an example of something that could be a sin. Okay, I'm with you. I mean, and the one thing I guess I would add is I do think sins need to be of a certain level of significance to move to that level. Like, again, worry. I can see how you're a Christian and you struggle with the sin of worry. Whereas when, when you get to a point, a sin is such a nature that you think, I don't know how I can call you a Christian. That's when we're moving to that point. And I kind of want to say with a sin like not giving, it's just harder to get to the point where you're like, I don't know how I can call you a Christian. Yeah, I don't know that it's, we're going to get much, much mileage out of just putting sins in categories like that. Because you think, you think of something like drunkenness. On the one hand, there are members of our church who get drunk. 
And if they are fighting against it, we are working with them, and we are not right. excommunicating them. Right. On the other hand, we have excommunicated people for being drunken because there's a pattern that they're drunks and they do not repent. They will not repent. They're not struggling. Right. To, well, that's some fine work trying to tell the difference between a guy who continues to struggle with it and a guy who, like, yeah, he keeps doing it, and it's just that's the way he is. Oh, I agree. So it's not the nature of the sin. Is drunkenness this serious or this unserious? It's, it's more what this sin enables us to see, how clearly we can see about the person's state, I think. See, I, would, I would say it needs to be three things. S- unrepentant. Yep. Significant. Not worry. And outward. Something you can see with the eyes or hear with the ears. In other words, it's like, you don't say, we're going to discipline you because you're proud. How do you know I'm proud? I can tell you're proud. I can, just, I can tell. No, you need to be able to, so I would say unrepentant, significant, outward, observable. Indisputable. Indisputable. That's right. But John, I would say this, in the area of giving, I certainly see that as a matter of serious spiritual discipline and discipleship. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, and I have different pastors that differ on this. I have some pastors that absolutely do not want to know at all what their people give. I have others that check every week. Now, it may be right or wrong motivation, at least with some, I think it is right because they recognize, or at least they will argue when a person has been a faithful giver and suddenly it just dries up, there's a spiritual issue in their life. Well, or it could be some other kind of issue that's significant, Correct. maybe unemployment that they're ashamed to tell you. And about. so they want to get involved, not for the purpose of what's wrong with you, why have you quit giving, but what's going on? Something obviously is problematic. So they approach it in that kind of way. I wouldn't have a problem with that. If you're looking at it as a discipleship issue, a barometer for what's going on in in your people's lives, I can see the value of that. Although when I was in the uh, pastoral role for 10 years, I never wanted to know. I didn't didn't trust me that I could act without bias if I knew, well, this guy really gives a lot. And that guy doesn't give a dime. And he expects me to come see him in the hospital because he's just got a broken toe. (laughs) I didn't want to have that issue before me because I might not pray for his broken toe to be healed. Right, right. Might break the other toe, but anyway. <laughs> Call the Christian you know, Hitman was... Society. Can I just say, I love this guy. Yeah. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> I've got like a man crush going on, you know. <laughs> Is that a public? It's a romance. Now here's what's awkward. I was about to transition to abuses of leadership. Uh, how do I... Be- before we get there, could I say something randomly nice about Presbyterians? Yeah, sure. I mean, but, but, just to shock Ligon, I mean, uh, here I go. Because there are so many Baptists in this room, and we're on the topic of church discipline, let me tell you a common way that Baptists misunderstand their Presbyterian brothers and sisters and deprive themselves of a resource. They often think our Presbyterian brothers and sisters are terrible on church discipline because they welcome all these unregenerate members called babies into their churches. And so we think, oh my goodness, you are just opening the door for unregenerate membership that we spend our whole lives as Baptists trying to close. To which I would just want to say, they're a little guilty of that. (laughs) But they don't mean anything bad by it. They think that circumcision covenant is still happening. But anyway, there's... um, the good thing, I'm getting to the good thing. I am getting to the good thing. Once the person is 18, they're going to treat him just like we do. So Ligon thinks a church should have regenerate members. A Presbyterian church believes in regenerate church membership just like a Baptist church when you're talking about adults. And what that means is almost every pastoral issue you've thought through on these kind of discipline matters, I hate to say it, but my guess is if you've got a PCA church near you, that brother has probably thought more about that than your average Baptist pastor, the same distance from your church. So you might have some really godly counsel with brothers that maybe you're surprised they actually share your same concerns. They do. And they may have thought about it more than you have. So I would just say appeal to your Presbyterian brethren to get counsel on some pastoral matters that you're facing because we, we really don't have theological disagreements when it comes to what we're trying to do with adults in the local church. Is that fair, Ligon? 
Absolutely. It took him a while to get there. But. And, and, <laughs> and um, you know, Mark, honestly, I, I've told you before, I think your interns read more ecclesiology than anybody I've ever met anywhere. So your, your interns are going to be perfectly capable of going in and having a polity ecclesiology discussion on the highest level with anybody they talk to. I do think Presbyterians have the benefit of having a book of order that's standardly used across an entire denomination so that whereas they may not individually be as well read in polity matters, they do have a helpful resource that they can turn to for standard kinds of issues that would be helpful to Baptist brethren that are wrestling with those kinds of things at a local church level. And uh, I also think that Presbyterians and Baptists in the 19th century both showed a greater interest in ecclesiology, polity, and discipline than, than both Presbyterians and Baptists did in the 20th century. And I think we're seeing a little bit of a renaissance in attention to those things in both Bible-believing Presbyterianism and in the SBC through nine marks and other, other things that are going on. So that's a good thing. But when, when, when I was in, in, at Furman, uh, I couldn't have found a Baptist that knew anything about historic Baptist polity. You and Al were the first two people that I'd ever met that knew anything about the glories of historic Baptist polity. And because when, in, in, in my day, in the 1970s at Furman, the only two things that, you, that, that my Baptist friends knew were soul competency and autonomy of the local church. That was it. That was the only polity they had left. And they didn't know anything about the things that you've been talking about for eight times here at, at Southeastern and, and for what you've been doing with Nine Marks. So I do think both groups have lots to learn from one another because of Baptists and Presbyterians alone, um, you know, in, in distinction from Lutherans and Anglicans, have believed that the way we do church ought to be derived from the Bible. Whereas Anglicans and Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox think that there are other sources that are authoritative for how we do church apart from the Bible. And so even though we, we come to some different conclusions, we start with the same premise that the Bible ought to inform how we do the life of the church together. And that means that we've got lots that we can offer to one another as we're trying to do that. Brothers, one last area of sin I just want to ask about because I think it's important for us to address this. Are there times where you realize we need to involve the authorities here? This, this is outside of our jurisdiction. We need to evolve yes. the authorities. Yes. Unpack that for me. When, when is that going to be? Serious sexual issues, abuse, um, violence, pedophilia. Um, man, <sighs> I've, I've used yeah. the authorities you, countless you, times. You need a godly lawyer in a local church that knows the state law uh, and knows all the reporting requirements for a whole array of, and, and you need him in the pastoral meeting to inform the pastors and elders, first of all, what their legal obligations of report are. And then somebody who's expert like Deepak Reju to walk you through the, the pastoral, the counseling side of that as well and that today because there there are people that are just waiting to take your church down they don't care about the gospel they don't care about jesus they don't care about your church they're ready to take you down because of one mistake in that area and we've got to be more careful in in that than ever before i i, I think that's right and, and i think part of what i wish i had said in, in, in part of the talk when we're talking about our hearts and our practice is, is brothers and sisters, we, we need to go ahead and admit we're going to make mistakes in this. That, that's a given. Absolutely. You're going to read something wrong. You're going to come to a wrong judgment. You're going to take a wrong action. Uh, we are fallible, right? And so wisdom requires know the law, uh, look up the mandatory reporting laws in your state, uh, comply with those laws. Do not trust your pastoral judgment above what the law requires of you. Um, and, and just guard your congregation, guard your people, guard yourself um, with that kind of compliance and, um, and, and a healthy suspicion of your ability.
Yeah, especially if, it, if it's something that involves a minor, uh, that's when you really want to very quickly uh, understand and know, you know, consult a lawyer. And if you don't have a lawyer in your congregation, I, I love the way Ligon assumes you have lawyers in your congregation, just <laughs> consult the local Presbyterian congregation and they'll have extra lawyers they can, <laughs> they can let you borrow. Uh, but, you know, move quickly on that and with deliberate speed, uh, you know, fundamentally, not, not merely to protect the church, but also to protect the, the young ones that are involved. Uh, that's that's our, our great desire in this. Well, and praise God that we live in a country that actually still cares when children are being abused. I mean, I think that's historically anomalous, right? I mean, most cultures don't prosecute, be my understanding, historically and around the world today, don't prosecute child abuse. And praise God we live in a country where the well, government it's still is... it's under pressure. Is, I mean, the lowering of the age of consent in Europe is in, in another way a legalizing of child abuse. I mean, there, there are a lot of places around the world that it's, it is under assault. Yes, right now in America, this one shard of morality right. remains, even while California legalizes self-killing, yeah. even while the moral horrendous actions of this nation increase week by week. For right now, there is a partial appreciation of the value of children, right. broadly shared even by non-Christians in our culture, which we should praise God for. Exactly. Christians, churches should be fans of, of that kind of work. Uh, Thabiti, tra transitioning to your talk, typical you, typical, compassionate, humane, pastoral. Food introduction. <laughs> uh, but the, the implicit suggestion throughout it is that what, throughout it was that it's really easy to go about this wrongly. And you even suggested as much just now. Is it, is it your sense that many churches are, are doing this? You know, we had a third of them stand or whatever it was. Is it your sense that a lot of them are doing it wrongly? I, I think all you need to do is Google, do a Google search, and you'll find more than enough instances uh, of situations that appear, at least, to have gone poorly. Uh, and those become object lessons for us. Now, not every allegation that, that the church did something wrong is true, um, but enough of them are. And um, I, again, I just, well, I just think it's a healthy caution about our own ability and um, just real prayerful um, seeking of discernment and patience and um, waiting for the Lord to reveal some things as, yeah. as we're working through this. Now, this might be a tough question to answer, but how do you know, either to you or to any of the brothers, how do you know if you're in a church where it is being done too severely even abusively. What are some signs of that? What do you do if you're in that church? Yeah, I think some things you would look for as, as possible signs. Um, let's go back to your question about which sins are, are, are dealt with. Um, I think if, if the pastors can't put their finger on a text in context that defines that behavior as sin, um, and uh, then, then I think, okay, that, that's at least reason to sort of hold up and say, wait a minute, are we, are we really in a category of sin or are we in some other categories? Um, if you have a leadership that, that will not countenance questions, you know, you, you raise a question and you get treated as if, you know, you're leading a mutiny in the church um, and uh, folks are heavy handed in their response to that. Um, again, there, there are real rebellions in, in which you know leadership needs to be firm but loving um, but by and large if you recognize yourself to be a good member of the church and are accepted as a good member of the church but you you can't raise a question and, and get an honest answer or, or get an answer um, that that's a sort of flag um, if if you recognize that the there's an effort to exert control in ways that look like lording it over um, someone's life. That, that's, a, that's a real flag. Um, so that, One example I've seen of this, I think done somewhat innocently, but it's destructive, is when elders will look at Hebrews 13 in the very clear language about obey those in authority over your leaders and think that that translates into they're in a kind of military and they as elders now have a higher rank than the members and therefore an elder can tell a member what to do. Now that's an elementary error. Uh, the reference to the elders in the plural, it's, it's so, so I'm the pastor, which I'm an elder, 
and I, I could tell Lyle to do something, and Lyle is under no moral obligation to do that because I'm a pastor and he's not. He's a member of my church, though. What, what that's in reference to is what the elders as a whole are deciding. That's about matters of doctrine and, and life that are addressed in Scripture, and we're applying it specifically. It's certainly not talking about what an individual elder tells an individual member to do. So there's all kinds of basic juvenile distortions like that, that, that sometimes with the best of will can happen, but it just, it's out of ignorance, and then it can easily bleed over into malice. Jonathan, I'd say where there's a spirit of fear rather than joy, which the BD alluded to tonight, that's a telltale sign. If you're in a church and you're just fearful of taking any kind of step, making any action, uh, rather than being joyful in the gathering of the body, rejoicing in all that we have in the gospel, I think that would be a sign that probably there's a heavy hand present that uh, is out of control or certainly more overbearing than it ought to be. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's helpful to just say that one, one discipline has many purposes. One of them is not to take away genuine Christian freedom. Right. So, so, so if, if you actually are in an area of Christian freedom, say giving. Give not according to what others have, but what you have according to what you purpose in your heart, so on and so forth, Second Corinthians 8 and 9. And you have a leadership that's telling you, you must give X amount. They are in fact constricting Christian freedom. And um, they are in fact creating a law that Christ has not given the church. Um, and if they are using discipline as the club to enforce that, then they're misusing discipline because its purpose is not the curtailing of genuine Christian freedom. That'd be another thing to, to watch out. Uh, if there is a lack of a transparent process of discipline that's based on the Bible so that every member knows what process is going to be followed, can ask questions about it, and then has a right of appeal on that. Uh, our Book of Church Order writes that right of appeal in for every church member. Uh, and if there is no accountability for those who are in leadership positions. Uh, so if they want you to be accountable to them, but they're not accountable, uh, then you've got, a, you've got a problem in the system. So one last thing is, is if your church begins to treat other churches as if, as if they're not genuine churches. And so it's us against them. That, that's tending in a cultic direction, you know. Um, and so I would be watchful for that as well. Garrett? Uh, never mind. Nothing done. Thabiti, you, it occurs to me as you were talking that right discipline takes a rare combination of, of courage and tenderness. Right? I, I'm, I'm out there willing to take the hits, and this is going to be tough, and I've got to be bold. But I'm, I'm weeping, right? Mm. So I'm sitting here listening, thinking, how do I become that kind of man? What's, what's the takeaway for me walking out of here? How do, how do I become that kind of pastor? It's a great question. Uh, I invite the rest of the panel to weigh in on this. Um, one is spend time with your people um, in all the seasons of their life, rejoicing and weeping with them. Um, two is spend even more time with Christ and his word, uh, particularly praying and asking him that uh, he, would, he would transfer his own heart and affection and sense of priorities about things uh, in, into your own heart. And so the things that uh, God clearly weeps about in the scripture, ask the Lord to teach you to weep about those things, or the things he rejoices over, ask him to teach you to rejoice over those things so that uh, his thoughts become more and more our thoughts and his ways become more and more our ways. Um, endeavor to do those things in a healthy plurality and listen to your fellow elders. So um, I admit to sort of tell this anecdote. We had a, a woman in our church in Cayman that surprised us, uh, had met someone online and within two weeks or just two weeks out from what was to be her wedding day, just sort of told some of us on the slide that she was getting married and it was a Muslim man from overseas. And, uh, and so we tried to get involved really quickly to, to turn that and, and to address things with her. And, um, and, and it was, there was a lot of heightened tension. And uh, some of the guys on the eldership were, 
Uh, I don't know, thinking through this, asking questions, moving slowly, more slowly than I wanted him to. And uh, I remember driving uh, back to the office from a lunch with two of the other elders, and, and we were talking about the issue, and, and I was exhorting them to, we, we need to move, we need to take action, we need to do some things. And one of the brothers just very quietly said, hey, he said, hey, bro, um, you think you might be worked up about this a little bit because you used to be a Muslim? I don't think so, but I'll pray about it. And, and I was earnest in that and, and, and spent a couple days praying about it, thinking about that. I still think I was acting with the right desires, acting in the right way on the issue, but they were helping me slow down and think about my own heart. And, and I don't doubt that in some ways my experience as a Muslim was influencing uh, my behavior in that, and I just needed to, to listen to them and, and um, submit to them in that. And so really doing this in the company of your elders is another way of prayerfully cultivating some of what you're asking about. It occurs to me, you just answered both questions in a way. How do you avoid abuses, authoritarianism, and what kind of, how do you cultivate the character you need? Mm. We want men to be elders who are able to submit to the other mm. elders. And if, if, if a man isn't able to submit to the other elders, you don't want to make him an elder in the first place. That's right, amen. Right? Did she marry the uh, guy? She did. And, and we disciplined her. One other thing I think it helps me. So both of those are, those are excellent answers. One of the just passage that is, now this is for really anything as a Christian, but also particularly as a, as a pastor, from 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, uh, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to, to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning thoughts, uh, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul has this, this, this mindset of one day we're going to be before Jesus and I'm going to give an account for the bride that he's entrusted to me and I want to do everything I can right now to make sure that she's pure. And that, that that big picture, I think it frees us from the fear of man. It, it casts us to just act in faith and to trust the Lord. And there's just something about that day, if that's before us at all time, it just, I think it produces that, that tenderness and courageousness that, that that's what matters. Let's get the bride home as pure as possible. For me, it helps to purify motives. Um, in a way that's, that's sobering for me. Guys, it's 9.30, which is the technical end of the time. Amen. I think, <laughs> I, am I think it's still worth bringing in our special guest for 15 minutes, but are there any last comments, any of you want to say about Thabiti or Danny's talks? Question or comment about the, these two brothers' labor? I would just say this, Thabiti models better than anybody I know, pastoral exposition. He handles the text absolutely magnificently, but he does so with the heart of a pastor. And if I could commend to the brothers here that are pastors, here's a wonderful model to emulate and go and do likewise. I love to hear him preach. Amen.